This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode is part of a long series that explores how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 3. Picture the smiling, bearded face of Santa Claus. A cute little cartoon Santa standing on a mound of snow in the North Pole. An igloo in the background. This is from a comic strip by Herbert Block. It came out when Americans were petrified of Soviet Russia. I mean, there's nothing like a little Cold War humor, right? The caption under this happy drawing reads, An international agent with headquarters close to Soviet Russia. Yeah, Santa travels internationally, and the North Pole looks kind of close to Russia on the map. The next block has his naughty and nice list. Head of a gigantic espionage ring with files on millions of Americans. Another drawing shows a collection bin for charity that sits next to a stuffed St. Nicholas in a department store. A man reaches into his pocket to donate. Openly opposed to the profit motive and flooding the country with propaganda. Maybe you see where this is going. Another block shows a set of parents standing by an open closet with presents spilling out. They hold their fingers to their mouths and make a shh sound to each other responsible for the fomenting of plots and secret actions in countless American homes. This cartoon does what only smart humor can do. It points out a deep truth while making us laugh. In the case of this strip, it demonstrates that just about anybody could be accused of being a Soviet spy. It was written in response to the Dyes Committee, also known as the Special Committee of Un-American Activities created in 1938 by the House of Representatives to look into the spread of propaganda and to determine who, if anyone, was involved in communist activities in the United States. They were not the first to do this. They were preceded by the Special Committee to Investigate Communist Activities of 1930, followed by the Special Committee of Un-American Activities of 1934. They apparently weren't very creative with their names back then. The United States, even before World War II, was suspicious of its own citizens. Were we spreading ideas that might undermine our system of government? Was Bolshevism growing in America? This created a series of mini red scares. Kangaroo courts in the land of the free and the home of the brave that dragged people before public hearings and smeared their names for thought crimes. We like to think of the United States as a place with a long history of free speech, freedom of ideas, the right to assemble. But in the 1900s, all of that was put on trial as a quote-unquote Christian nation feared impending 
doom. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. By 1940, the world was at war. Well, not the United States. We were actually pretty late to World War II. There was a lot of pressure in the U.S. to stay out of it. Europe was in trouble. Fascism was taking over. We were emerging from the Great Depression. And even though we were out of the war, we were worried that foreign countries could be having an influence on us. So when Herbert Rapp, a Republican in the New York State Legislature, introduced a bill to examine school spending in the state, someone said, If we're investigating the schools, why don't we also see if there are any fascist, Nazi, and communist influences while we're at it? Thus was born the Rapp Kudert Committee. Remember, the committee was interested in budgets, numbers, and while they were there, could they also root out fascist Nazis and communists? kind of a lot for one committee. And there were plenty of interests at play. One estimate from the Times said that 10% of students in New York had to stand because there were no desks for them. Class sizes ballooned to 50 kids per teacher. There wasn't a lot of money. Again, this was the end of the Depression. Conservatives wanted to balance the state budget by cutting schools even further. Liberals sought more funding. But everyone wanted to know, were children, some of which were standing all day, being taught fascist or communist ideas in the classroom? They chose as their chief counsel a man named Paul Windles. Now, Paul Windles was the real deal, with an impressive track record. New York City had been super corrupt for decades at this point. Graft government contracts going to the highest bidder, all organized by a New York City political organization known as Tammany Hall. Really fascinating stuff, mobsters, deals made in back rooms. Windles and a bunch of other people were instrumental in bringing down the corruption. So when it came time to choose someone to lead the Rap Kudert Committee to be the chief counsel, Wendells looked like the perfect guy. Not only was he a Republican, which means he'd be tough on the budget, but he was also a liberal. And yes, that was possible. Whereas later hearings like those under Joseph McCarthy could be pigeonholed as conservative witch hunts, Rap Kudert was bipartisan. Many of its key participants were liberals. Wendell said that he'd run this investigation like the one that brought down Tammany Hall, because it had been so successful in rooting out corruption. What he wanted, at least what he said he wanted, was to steer clear of the pitfalls earlier committees had fallen into, making charges against people based on gossip, rumor, or hearsay. His stated desire was essentially to treat these hearings, these inquiries into people who might be spreading fascism and communism, like a grand jury. Keep it fair, keep it honest. That's not what he did, though. What he ended up doing was trying people in the court of public opinion. He denied them their rights, withheld information, assumed guilt, ruining careers, destroying friendships, 
and setting the stage for the more famous McCarthy hearings of the 1950s. Here's how it worked. Wendells and his team interviewed staff and faculty in closed-door meetings. Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? But the person being interviewed did not have the right to a lawyer. I mean, this was just a hearing, after all. They'd have someone in the corner taking dictation, and the transcripts would then be typed up and kept in secret. The transcripts from those private hearings were only for Wendells and his team, meaning that the defense didn't have access to the evidence. In a trial, lawyers defending someone have a right to the evidence that will be used against their client. Transcripts of depositions, interviews, police records. This was just a hearing, though. That information was held only by Wendells and his team. When they got into the public hearing in front of the press and looky-loos, Wendells called witnesses to the stand. But nobody was allowed to offer a defense or cross-examine the witnesses. Meaning, if Wendells were to say, What is it like being a dirty communist? Which I don't think he said, I just made that up. But if he said that, there would be nobody to counter with, Objection! You know, like you see in courtroom dramas. Or to ask a follow-up question of witnesses. So, if you had a witness on the stand who said, I believe Professor Smith is a communist. There was nobody there to ask a follow-up question, no matter how obvious that question was. Like, How do you know that Professor Smith is a communist? Did you see him distributing materials, attending rallies, recruiting students? Nope. Nobody could ask those follow-ups. If someone said, I believe Professor Smith is a communist. And Wendells and his team didn't ask how in the world she knew that, the question never got asked. You see the problem with that? People on the stand could speculate and maybe nobody would question them. Whatever they said, no matter how unfounded, made it into the public record. And then, the newspapers. Which is another difference between this hearing and a grand jury. Grand juries are performed in secret. The Rap Kudert hearings were public. So let's say that you and I are communists. I, I'm not a communist, but let's pretend. Maybe we just went to a meeting once, read some literature, or maybe one of our close colleagues was a communist. They might suspect us of being Soviet supporters, too. So what are the options if we're called before the committee to testify? The meeting is public. The media are present. What do we say? How do we defend ourselves? Well, why not plead the fifth? I plead the fifth. You probably hear that in courtroom dramas, too. That's referring to the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, which says, among other things, that a person can't be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. The city of New York got around the Fifth Amendment by requiring in its charter that all public employees had to cooperate with legislative and other investigations. If they didn't comply, they could lose their jobs or be held in contempt simply for staying silent. Which, under a normal trial, would be their right. Laws protecting people from stuff like this wouldn't be strengthened until the 1960s. 
So if you and I, two suspected communists, stay silent, we risk being held in contempt or losing our jobs. No small problem while the U.S. was still in the Great Depression. That was not exactly the best time to be unemployed. Also, Wendell's and public opinion were against you if you pled the fifth. I plead the fifth. Seeing it as an admission of guilt. I mean, it's bad logic, but it went something like this. Why would you keep silent if you had nothing to hide? Um, because it's your right? In 1940, there was nothing illegal about being a member of the Communist Party. It wasn't illegal until 1954 during the Eisenhower administration. Nor was it illegal to go to meetings, read or distribute literature, or invite people to join. All of that was still perfectly legal. Yet, public opinion was against communism even at this time, way before the Cold War really heated up, or cooled down, or whatever Cold Wars do. <laughs> the fear was less about one person being a communist. The concern was that a teacher would share their ideas with the classroom, indoctrinate others. The Rap Kuderit Commission was going to stop that from happening and fix the budget or whatever too. Public opinion was with them. Even among liberals, teachers were expected to keep their personal beliefs out of the classroom. A New York Times article from 1940 argued that freedom of speech and assembly ended at the schoolhouse door. Communists, it argued, lost First Amendment protection by quote-unquote practicing bad faith. Wendells said this in his opening remarks. There is no civil liberty to commit a breach of trust. There is no academic freedom to be one thing and pretend to be something else. There is no freedom in this country to poison the rising generation in the name of any political philosophy which practices hypocrisy and deception as a part of its central and vital doctrine. In other words, don't be sharing your communist principles in public schools or colleges. They undermine our system of government. They poison our kids' minds. Hey, let me, um, let me let you in on a little secret. Uh, come with me really quick. Okay, um, I probably shouldn't be telling you this, but, um, there actually were communists among the faculty and staff. I, I know that's maybe a surprise. You thought maybe I was going to say there weren't, but... There were, and there were in the teachers' unions, too. Estimates at the time said that there were as many as a few hundred. But over 30,000 people worked there, even if there were a thousand secret communists, which was a high estimate, we'd still only be talking about 3% of the staff. So there were communists, but not many compared to the number of staff. The people doing the hearings they were afraid that this tiny minority might use their platforms as teachers to spread communism through the New York City school systems. Here's the problem, though, and I don't think they want me to tell you this, but Wendell's never had any evidence that they'd shared their political opinions with anyone else. Now, that's key. There was no evidence that they'd indoctrinated their students. None. What happened is that his team found literature that encouraged communists to use schools to spread their beliefs. But there was no evidence that anyone ever had. I know that sounds like splitting hairs, 
but there were lots of different kinds of communists, just like there are lots of different kinds of Christians. Some communists did advocate for infiltrating schools. Does that mean that the people pulled before the Rap Kudert Commission ever did? No. It's like if you found a pamphlet calling for all Christians to handle snakes to test their faith in God. Does that prove that all Christians handle snakes? No, not at all. The belief of one segment of a group does not necessarily define the whole group. Wendells and his team had no evidence of indoctrination. Still, in their minds, if you were a communist, it was proof enough that you were using your position to influence the minds of young people. Okay, I just gotta look around. Hold on a second. The coast is clear. I don't think they saw us stuck in here. Let's go. Right. Uh, <clears throat> let's continue our example. So, if someone said that I were a communist, which I'm not, even if they didn't present any evidence, I was in a tight place. Let's take another look at my options. Again, if I pled the fifth, I could be fired and the press would assume I was guilty, not to mention possibly being held in contempt. I could admit to being a communist, but then I'd definitely get fired. Or the third option is I could name names, list some communists or people I might just have a hunch about, and by doing so, prove what a patriot I am. None of those are particularly great options, especially if you did have some affiliation with the Communist Party. Someone may come out and name your name. Then you'd be fired and blacklisted for lying. If you were accused, what could you do? With their options narrowing, some of those who would be called to the witness stand came up with a plan, a way to blame all of this on one man. They'd pick a patsy, one guy, to take the fall for everyone. We'll be back after these messages. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Some people named names. People like Professor Bernard Grabenier a former member of the party himself. William Martin Canning was another. He alone pointed fingers at 44 municipal college employees in the public hearing, though he'd named 63 in the private ones. 37 of those were confirmed by a woman named Annette Sherman Gotzengen. Based on the testimony of just those two people, suspensions began within weeks. 
anyone could see what was at stake. Again, not only could you lose your job, but possibly your career in academia, and your name would be smeared in the papers. Even just an accusation meant your pals stopped talking to you because it became a liability to be your friend. Nobody was going to publish the research of a suspected communist. Family members, colleagues, and friends disappeared for fear of being roped into your nightmare. Those who had participated in communist activities came up with a plan. Have one person admit to being a communist. The communist. The only one in the teachers' union. That guy could draw the public attention on himself, be the sacrificial lamb, and then protest the hearing in a higher court to challenge the system. Get everyone else off the hook and provide legal grounds for a real trial. That lot fell on Morris Shapps. Shapps was an immigrant from Ukraine, a trade unionist and anti-fascist. He spoke with a stammer and was beloved by his students. He joined the Communist Party around 1934. When it was his turn to testify, he claimed that he was the unicorn, the last and only communist member of the staff. It didn't work. Because people like William Canning had already provided a list of suspected communists. Shapps was indicted for perjury eight days later, convicted on four counts, and served a year and a half in jail. With their attempt to move all the blame on one guy behind them, more faculty and staff were called to testify. Soon enough, an unhappy pattern started to emerge. Of 20 people suspended in May, all but four were Jewish. And it wasn't just in these hearings that anti-Semitism cropped up. In 1949, New York passed the Feinberg Law, which blocked communists from getting jobs in public education. In the first wave of firings after Feinberg, all but one were Jewish. Public opinion was not with Jewish people. In 1938, 60% of Americans polled had negative opinions of Jews. Before 1933, there were five organizations in the U.S. that were explicitly anti-Semitic. By 1941, there were a hundred. This wave of anti-Semitism was felt even in Christian circles. Father Charles Coughlin was a famous radio host and Nazi sympathizer. In May of 1938, he called for the founding of the Christian Front, a movement dedicated to protecting supposedly Christian institutions from communists and Jews. The Christian Front organized meetings on street corners and in assembly halls. They were largely working-class Catholic immigrants from Ireland, Poland, and Italy. Folks notoriously stuck with bad jobs. No upward mobility. They saw Wall Street as being run by Jews, and the New Deal as creeping socialism. Because of movements like the Christian Front, New York saw a sharp rise in anti-Semitic violence. This happened at the same time that Hollywood started censoring content. Rumors surfaced that Jewish Hollywood executives were using lewd content to subvert society, spreading communist ideas through film. Christian groups protested, forcing studios to self-censor. I did a whole episode about this, but it bears repeating. The golden age of cinema 
didn't occur because people were cleaner, happier, and nicer people back then. It happened because Christian groups threatened to boycott the industry, and because Jewish people who did work in the film world were afraid of persecution. Apparently, with good reason. Remember, this is right when Jewish people were being persecuted en masse in Europe. Why couldn't that same thing happen here in the U.S.? Jewish professors at Brooklyn College and City College of New York provided a list of Nazi sympathizers and anti-Black and anti-Jewish acts performed by staff members, even by outright supporters of Mussolini. Yet, the Kuder Committee concluded that there was no Nazi or fascist activity in the schools. None. Lots of commies, no Nazis. Despite evidence to the contrary. In all, the committee interviewed almost 700 people in its kangaroo style, interrogating something like 500 witnesses. At City College of New York alone, the investigation resulted in the firing of over 50 staff members. Ultimately, the committee lasted for just a few years. One nail in its coffin was Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 when the Soviet Union was forced to join the fight against the Axis powers. Not long after, Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese, along with many other targets in the Pacific. And the U.S. was at war. The committee could go on, but what good would it do to persecute our allies? The Rap Kudert hearing was just a precursor to what would come after the war. Blacklists in Hollywood. McCarthyism in the government following much the same tack as their predecessor. These kangaroo courts pulled people into the public eye, ignored due process and constitutional rights, and ruined reputations. We like to think the United States is a place where people are free. They can think what they want, join any group they choose, speak as they wish. But history shows us that we don't always hold to that standard. When fear grips the country, all bets are off. We act irrationally. Compare these persecutions in the U.S. and those of the Soviet Union. The Soviets oppressed people who didn't agree with them. And so did the U.S. Of course, the difference is that the United States didn't kill our targets in these cases. We did, however, shame them publicly, often on weak or non-existent evidence ruining relationships, careers, and families. Today, these stories should bring up a lot of questions in our minds. If we are a Christian nation, as some people say, how should we deal with our enemies, real or perceived? One of the big questions of this season is who gets to experience the rights as a citizen? Who gets protection under the First Amendment to speak freely? Who can plead the Fifth? Christians, are you getting this? Is it just people who think like we do? If so, that's not really free speech at all. Perhaps our fear of the other isn't working for us. It certainly creates a frustrating past for us to look back on when we see our country persecuting people for a legal belief. Quote unquote, Christian groups scapegoating Jewish people. Yet, it's too simple to leave it there. Wouldn't it be nice and tidy if I could just make us feel bad about the past? Yeah, it's not that easy. It ignores a really basic fact, that there were Soviet spies in the Allied countries. 
people like Klaus Fuchs, one of the primary physicists on the Manhattan Project, who passed information about the atomic bomb to the Soviets. Yeah, he was a communist, and he was working for the government, and he was not the only one to do this. There were Soviet spies in many parts of the U.S. government. It was because of people like Fuchs that the Soviet Union caught up to the United States in its nuclear capabilities. I mean, that messes with your moral indignation, right? The trick is that history is complicated. We lampoon the Cold War as being a bunch of worry about nothing. But there was a lot on the line. The fate of the whole world, really, when you think about it, because of the threat of nuclear war. But when we suspend justice and due process in our desperate attempts to find someone to blame, is that really the action of a Christian people? For the people of the Christian front, it was easier to blame the Jews than to fix the underlying societal problems. For people like Windles, it was easier to use trickery to frame someone for a crime than to do an actual investigation. Give the people a quick, clear enemy. When we suspend justice in favor of a circus, we end up where we started, with guys like Santa Claus seeming like the enemy. I mean, his coat is red, so is Rudolph's nose, of course he's a communist! But those kind of conspiracies make us look ridiculous. We Christians can't be about convenient conspiracies. We have to be willing to do the hard work of justice. Want to go deeper into these issues around the dinner table tonight? Well, I put together some questions based on this episode that you can use to spark discussion. They're in your show notes on your device right now and also on the website at trucepodcast.com. The backbone of this story comes from the book Bad Faith by Andrew Pfeffer. I've got a list of our other resources on the website. Truce is a listener-supported show. My goal is to do this full-time. If you'd like to be a part of making these stories, of raising the bar on what Christian media can be, visit trucepodcast.com slash donate. I'd also love for you to follow the show on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at at trucepodcast. And would you consider leaving a comment on your podcasting app? It helps people find the show, and I do try to read them. It's really nice to hear from you all. Thanks again to Roy Browning from JMC Brands, who built the website at trucepodcast.com, and my friend, the author, Andrew Huff, who designed the logo. Special thanks to everybody who loaned me their voices for this episode, including Marvin Benson of the Cinematic Doctrine Podcast, voiceover artist J.D. Sutter, Parker J. Cole of the Right Stuff Podcast, and Tim Winders of the Seek, Go, Create Podcast. God willing, we'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible 
Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.